Again, welcome to Stonebridge. I wrote a book. Yeah, all right. Okay, it's fine. So, I didn't actually write a book. (laughs) Off to a good start. If I did write a book on this particular topic, here would be the five chapters. The, The title would be this. Five tried and true rules for being an unhappy churchgoer. Five tried and true rules for being an unhappy churchgoer. Ready? Okay. When possible, just listen or watch the messages of the sermons from home or from the deer stand or from the road. I mean, think about it. You don't have to talk to anyone. Press pause and play whenever you want. And it's not any inconvenience of your time. You don't have to come Sunday morning. So there's the first one. Second one, under no circumstances, do anything outside of attending Sunday service. Okay, connection groups, Bible study, anything like that is probably going to cause you a little anxiety, maybe some fear. You're definitely, your social bubble is going to be popped. So don't do that. And the unpardonable sin is serving within the church. You want to avoid that at all costs. Number three, grumble, gossip, and complain about anything and everything. Be strategic, though. Do it behind people's backs. And when you aren't doing it behind people's backs, make it sting. Number four, when you do have to talk to Christians, be vague, fake, and surfacy. I mean, you want to be hurt like you were before, right? So keep it vague. You don't want to appear too unholy, so just be fake. You don't have to change anything in your life or deal with anything in your life, right? So just stick to the weather in your conversation. And five, when, God forbid, you have conflict or frustrations with other believers, run! Find a different church. Don't ever talk to those people again. There you go. There's my book. Really. That's why it hasn't been published. Not very uplifting. (laughs) Philippians 2, 1 through 4. That's where we're at this morning. So if you want to turn to Philippians 2. But in this, here's what Paul is saying. And here's what God is saying to us today. Your joy must produce our joy. Your personal joy must produce unity. See, your joy in Jesus will always be second rate apart from our corporate joy. The longer you live by those rules, those five things I just said, the more joy you're going to miss out on in your life. So, if you will stand with me, we're going to read Philippians 2. We don't always do this. I want to do this today because it's God's word. If you'd all stand with me, it's out of reverence for God and Him speaking. And these four verses are incredible. All of Scripture is incredible, but this is especially beautiful and poignant and just better than anything that I could say. So let's stand for God's words here this morning. Philippians 2.1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests 
of others. You may be seated. Paul asks one big question in verse 1, and he asks this, do you have any joy? Do you have any? Like a trace. Do you have any? He's asking the Philippians. Do you see that? Verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Essentially saying, do you got any joy? Verse 1 has a series of questions, a series of four questions that can be boiled down to this one. Do you have any joy in Jesus? And the implied answer that Paul is, is getting at is, of course you do, Philippians. Of course you do, Stonebridge Church. Joy, a good biblical definition of joy is this. Satisfaction and delight in God, independent of circumstances. Notice Paul isn't asking, hey, do you have a ton of joy? Is your joy overflowing? You got peace like a river in your... He's not asking that, okay? It's a good song, but he's not, that's not what Paul's asking here. He's saying, do you have just any joy at all? Think about how gracious Paul is being here. How gracious is he? Remember where Paul is? He's in jail. And he's going, do you have any joy? Do you have just a little? I mean, Paul almost certainly had more trials and tribulations in his life. Things were harder for Paul, almost assuredly for everyone in that Philippian church. And so he's probably, I mean, if, if I was Paul in this situation, I would be like, don't you have a ton of joy? You're not in jail. But he's like, no, do you have any He's being sympathetic. He's being empathetic. He understands. Yeah, life is hard. There's no comparison in suffering. Life is just hard for us. So I'm not going to pretend like my, my stuff is harder than yours. We're just all going through hard things. It's a hard life full of sin. It's a hard world full of sin. And, and so what do, we, what do we do? We try to find joy. We choose joy. And he's like, you got any? You got any in Jesus? And question one here that he asks is, do you have any encouragement in Jesus? Do you have an encouragement in Christ? Encouragement means to give courage to somebody. To give courage. It's not a conjured up, pretend to be strong courage. It's a courage that is given from a source outside of yourself. And he's saying, hey, do you have any courage that's been given to you from Christ? And for us today, so think about it. Is the reality of Jesus in you and with you? If you are a follower of Jesus, is the reality of Jesus in you and with you, does that give you any strength at all? Does it give you any trace of joy at all? And if it doesn't, let me remind you of who Jesus is. Let's just pull over for a second. If you don't have any courage given to you from Jesus right now, or it doesn't feel like it, you've probably forgotten who Jesus is. So if you'll just turn over a couple pages with me to Colossians, it's the next book over. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. just want to camp out here. Who, who is Jesus? Let's remind ourselves. Colossians 1, 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 
He's the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. He's the exact representation of God in human form. He's God in human flesh. Do you think he could give you some courage? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was the first human born. That's not true. That was, that was Adam. That was Eve. That was, you know, lots of people were born before Jesus was humanly born on this earth, right? But firstborn has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the rights that you get being the firstborn son. And he is the one and only son of God. So he gets the inheritance. That's what it meant in their culture. That's what it means when it says he's the firstborn of all creation. He has the rights over everything that we can see, everything that we can't see. He's got the rights. That's his inheritance, and it is his. So don't you think he could give you some courage? He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. So he doesn't just have the rights over it. He created everything that we see. Every, and everything we don't see in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. I mean, the creator of everything, that you, the amoebas, things that you can't even see and things that you cannot see. Stars, planets, galaxies that you don't even know about, that we don't even know about. God created them and spoke them into existence. Do you think he could speak some encouragement into your life today? That's Jesus. Verse 17, he is before all things. He's the one who was and always was and always will be. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's always been around. Do you think he could give courage? He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Why aren't we just combusting right now? Why, why is not our whole universe not just going into chaos? Why, why is there still oxygen in the air right now? Because Jesus is holding everything together. And if he's holding it all together, he can definitely give you courage here this morning, no matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't end there. Verse 18, he's the, he's the head of the body, the church. He, he is the leader of Stonebridge Church. He is the leader of all believers of all time periods. He's the leader of every church that's ever been. He's the leader of the Philippian church. So don't you think he could give you some courage today? He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that firstborn thing. That means he's got the rights over death. How does he have the rights over death? Because he defeated death. Keep reading. That in in him, everything might be preeminent. He's got complete power. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, he didn't just stop and go, you know what? I have the rights to everything. He goes, there's that one thing because of their sin. So I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to make right relationship between what was broken here between me and my creation. And he does it out of love. 
and made peace by the blood of his cross. See, that's Jesus. You've probably forgotten who Jesus is if you, if you don't have any encouragement in Christ, if you are not receiving any courage from Christ. Fix your gaze to Jesus. The reality, what is always true is that if you are a believer, he is in you and he is with you. And if you don't have any courage from Christ, you've forgotten reality. You've forgotten what Paul says later in Philippians that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means I, can not, I can't do anything at any point. It means I can walk through anything, any situation, any circumstance. I can go through this and not just get through it, but go through it with courage and with confidence because he's in me, strengthening me. You've forgotten reality if you don't have any courage right now. And so I, wanna, I don't want to just leave you hanging from a couple weeks ago. I, gave, um, I talked a little bit about those who struggle with anxiety and depression and even suicidal thoughts. And I just don't want to leave you hanging. And Paul doesn't leave us hanging here this morning. If you struggle with anxiety and at times we all have anxious thoughts if we're honest. When you're crippled by that anxious thought. Picture a shelf in your mind. There's usually something in your mind that's on that shelf. And it's just first in your thoughts. And you're just going, I can't get it out. It won't stop. It won't stop. And there's the anxiety, right? You know what I'm talking about. The thing that is on your shelf. So maybe it's, maybe it's financial hardship. Maybe it's a loved one who is really struggling. Maybe it's a strained relationship. Whatever it is, is really hard There it is on that shelf. I can't get it out. I can't get it off the shelf. Well, turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn to Colossians 1, 15 to 20 this week. Turn to all of scripture that points to Jesus, right? Turn to his people. Focus yourself on Jesus and and in your mind, take that thing off the shelf and put Jesus on that shelf. Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Question two. Do you have any comfort from love? You guys better buckle up. We've uh, covered one line of one verse. It's okay. We'll get done in time. Do you have any comfort from love? It says. Comfort. What's comfort? Comfort is rest. Comfort is peace in your mind. It's joy. But the source of true real comfort is love. But it's not a love that comes from within yourself. You can't conjure this kind of love up. It it does come from outside yourself. And it specifically comes from God the Father. That's what Paul's referring to here. Do you have any comfort from God the Father's love? And you can't measure God's love. It's immeasurable. We see in scripture. It's uncontainable. But J.I. Packer, a theologian, to try to just wrap his mind around it and try to help us wrap our mind around God's love, says, hey, there's two yardsticks to measure God's love, if you could. The first yardstick is the cross. It's the cross. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. 
want some comfort from the love of the Father, look to the cross. The other yardstick to measure God's love, according to J.I. Packer, is adoption. This concept of adoption. He didn't just, Jesus didn't just go to the cross to take care of our sin problem, to absorb the wrath of God and, and take our place, his righteousness, for our unrighteousness. So we're legally good before God, so we don't get our hands slapped by him. But no, that's not it. It doesn't stop there. He didn't just make peace, make it okay. No, he, he adopted us. He made us his children. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Romans eight fifteen. you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that means Daddy. We sing sometimes, you're a good, good Father, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am. So a little more help for the anxious here. I'm struggling to believe that God loves me when you are struggling to believe that God loves you. Picture something like this. This is the, the home screen to my phone. This is a picture of me with our youngest Ian and he's on my shoulders and we're walking down at ledges. And someone prayed this over me recently. Hold on, buddy, I've got you. And so I just, just picture God the Father, and His great love throwing me on His shoulders when I'm like, yeah, it's, it's hard. I don't really feel loved by you. And just remember the reality. He's got you. Hold on. Question three. In verse one, do you have any participation in the Spirit? Pastor C.J. Mahaney describes this well. Paul moves from theological certainties to experiential realities. So he moves from what is true. Here's what's true. You can have encouragement in Jesus. You can have comfort from the Father's love. And now he moves to this experiential reality. He reminds us that, hey, the Holy Spirit's power and presence in your life through spiritual gifts, through through Uh, Fruits of the Spirit. He's up to something. You are participating in something larger than yourself as a believer. Saying, hey Philippians, have you enjoyed God? Not just inwardly, but outwardly. Are you experiencing God? Are you experiencing the Holy Spirit at all? He's asking just a little trace. In your everyday life. As you're loving on people and serving other people and using your gifts and using your talents, are you experiencing the Holy Spirit? Are you conversing with Him through the Word, through prayer, just through life, through others? I mean, it's one thing to know in your head that God gives you courage and loves you. That is huge, but it's another thing to experience that as you step out in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not even describable, but you know what I'm talking about if you've done it. Question four. Do you have any affection and sympathy? Here's another experiential reality. Are you, are you living in the reality of God's affection and sympathy? Okay, it's, Yes, He loves us, but do you, do you live in the reality? Are you experiencing the fact that God is tender? That God empathizes with you day to day. Did you know that? Is that God to you? 
I mean, not, not just what you know about God. Is that God in your everyday life as you walk through life, the ups and the downs? Is God tender? Is that how you view him? Because that's God. He, he's affectionate. He sympathizes with us. Is he more like a tender father to you? Or like a bad boss? Like functionally, is he more like a tender father? Like, like one of my mentors in college who just listened so well and spoke at just the right time and had warm, inviting eyes and heart. I mean, just an indescribable thing that showed me the tenderness of the father. Is that how you view God? Or do you view God as a bad boss who at best is just indifferent, like, yeah, just get your work done, whatever, I don't care. Or at worst is just harping on you all the time. He's patient. He's understanding. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's sympathetic. All these questions, all these four questions point to the fact that joy is available to us right now through encouragement in Christ, comfort from the Father's love, experiencing the Holy Spirit, experiencing God's affection and sympathy. But notice he's not even addressing yet individuals. I've treated it like that so far, but he's not. He's not addressing individuals. He's addressing all of this church, all of the Philippians. And he's saying, if you don't have any encouragement, comfort, love, any of this, Surely other people around you do. So start rubbing some shoulders with some other people in your church. Saying to you collectively as a church family. Have any joy at all. A trace. Because the answer to that is definitely yes. Even if, even if a single one of them. Didn't really feel much joy. He's like. Yeah but you, you have it as a group. Because we all have access to true joy all the time. And I love the way that these four verses are structured. Because it tells us about God's heart. Verse 1 is the foundation. It is the gospel. Gospel means good news. It's joy. It's grace. It's God's work. God's grace. That's the starting point here. The command, verse 2, is be unified. God's work, God's grace, verse 1, is the motivation to obey. That's how God works. Grace-motivated obedience, identity-driven action. Notice, he doesn't just come in and go, Hey, be unified already, Philippians. Wake up, get your stuff together. He doesn't do that. It's like, remember who you are. Remember how loved you are. Remember how encouraged you are. Remember the Holy Spirit in you. Remember that God is tender. And that is what will drive you to be unified. That is how you live out this command. Is living from your identity. So then the, the second question from verse 2. We see, is your joy producing our joy? Is your joy producing unity? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying your joy is incomplete without our joy. Paul's personal joy here is incomplete without the Philippians corporate joy. Notice how selfless that is. Who cares? Right? You're sitting in jail 
a church miles away from you, why would them being unified affect your joy? Because he loves them so much. Paul's affection for this church is so great. But it tells us more than that. It tells us that we are actually missing out on and falling short of true joy without unity, without our joy. That's what completes joy. Now, what is unity? Why don't you pick a more misunderstood word, Matt? (laughs) Well, I didn't do it. It's in here. That's the concept. But let me define it. Here's what we mean. It's in the verse. Here's what unity means. It means having, being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. Or put another way, having the same purpose. Having the same purpose. You're headed in the same direction. And as believers, both then and now, that that same direction is loving God and loving other people. That was the greatest commandment. And the second that's like it that Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the purpose. That's the direction. You want to know if, if a, a group of believers is unified or they're headed in the same direction. But it's more than that. There's a phrase in here as well that says having the same love. It means you're motivated by the same thing. You're going in the same direction, but you have the same motive. You have the same drive, and that's Christ's sacrificial love. Our joy or unity means we're headed in the same direction for the same reason. And for the Philippians and for us, that means loving God and loving other people because of God's love for us. So let me put some feet to this. You got the worship team up here, right? And they're trying to lead us in worship to worshiping the King of Kings together as a family And so they need to have the same direction. And the same direction, at least the main direction that they have, is to make quality music. And if they weren't all about making quality music, it would be disastrous. And it's actually really good for us to be about making quality music. Because God is quality, is he not? God is perfect. So it's actually, that's, that's a fantastic thing. It also is less distracting to us if you have quality music and helps us worship the King of Kings. He's, he's worthy of it, right? But they have to have that same direction. If someone up here isn't about making quality music, good luck. And then motivation. Their motivation has to be God's love. God loves me so much that I want to help other people love him this morning. And while it's not as perceivable, or it's not as, you can't see it as concretely, it can be very palpable if every person on the worship team doesn't, isn't motivated by God's love. Because if they're not, they're going to be about putting on a great show to look awesome in front of y'all. In the same way, our joy, our unity has to be headed in the right direction and have the same motives. Here's what unity and joy is not. It's not, it does not mean everyone's doing the exact same thing and is thinking the exact same thing all the time or it's free of conflict. It does mean, though, that everyone is going in the same direction with the same motivation. 
working through conflict in healthy, God-honoring ways and, and, and trying to fulfill Romans twelve eighteen. As far as it depends on me, live at peace with all people. And you and I both know how hard that is at points. So what do we do if our personal joy, we've got joy, We have just a trace, at least, of joy in Jesus. But what if that's not producing unity? What if there's still that relationship? What if there's still that that stuff going on that's just creating division? What what do we do? Let's go back to the outline of this. Verse 1 is the foundation. It's the starting point. Here's who I am. I'm loved. I'm encouraged. Here's the gospel. Verse 2, here's the command. Be unified. I'm struggling to do that, though. So what do I do? The Bible is so practical. God is so practical. This is how he works. Here's the motivation. Here's, here's the foundation. Here's the command. And then here's how you do it. A lot of people have a totally warped view of their Bibles. Thinking that this is a book of do this, do this, do this. But they haven't, clearly haven't read it. At least with, with the correct lens. Because there's, he tells us. Here's how you can do it. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What do we do if our personal joy isn't producing unity, isn't producing our joy? You learn a new heart language. Now, what's a heart language? Well, you'll be surprised by this. My heart language is English. Imagine that probably most of us in this room. It's a language that you think in. It's the language that you talk in predominantly. Um, you might know other languages, but your heart language is, is this language. Some people say it's, it's impossible to change your heart language. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's been done. Um, but it's essential spiritually for us. And our heart language is selfishness. That's what these verses are saying. Here's what I'm really good at, and here's what you're really good at. Being selfish. And here's the heart language that you need to learn to walk in. Selflessness. So I have this chart for you to help make some sense of these verses. So verse 3, selfishness, selfish ambition, it calls it. Let that turn into selflessness or humility. And here's how you do it. Change your focus. Our natural bent is to focus on impressing other people. When you walk into a room, don't deny it. When you walk into a room, your natural bent is try to impress other people. When it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, that word conceit is is actually translated by some translations as, don't try to impress others. But isn't that our bent? Like, I want to walk into a room and just like, man, I want to put these clothes on and do my hair. Well, maybe not so much for me, but some, some people i to do my hair this way, Joey. Yes. Uh, I want to, I want to do this or that. So they can be like, wow, it's looking good. Right. Or, or we just think, oh, I'm going to say this. or I'm going to bring this up in conversation. Or I'm going to talk about this in this way and this in that way. Why? So that people can go, wow, he's made it. Impressing others needs to shift to elevating others. Count others more significant than yourselves. So that when you walk in a room, 
It's not me now. It's not about me, me impressing you. It's about you. It's about elevating you. And, and what this passage isn't saying that, that other people are more significant than you. That's not true. That is a lie. We're all made in the image of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all have infinite value to God and the same infinite value to God. It's just saying when you walk into a room, when you are around people, how do you treat them? Do you, do you elevate them above yourself? Do you treat them like they are better than you? The way you prepare to be with people will often set the stage for how your, your, your heart language comes out, selfish or selfless. Your concern is important too. You have your own interests in mind. Is it just my best in mind? What can I get out of this? Like I'm going to let this person go first in line when I'm, when I'm at this thing today so that they can think of me as a good person. See, that is actually still very selfish. Selflessness, though, has other people's best in mind. I'm going to let them go first in line. Why? Because I want to serve them. They probably are really hungry. They want to eat. Get, go for it. I mean, no one sees that, but God sees that. Right? Selflessness. Other people's best in mind. It's hard work. It's a struggle. You're, we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to shift this heart language. But this is nothing new. Paul is just fleshing out the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you were just to evaluate, evaluate your life, how's it going with verses 3 and 4? Really, how is it going? I was reading a book called Professionalizing Motherhood. Okay, I wasn't reading that book. Heather was reading that book. Um, it doesn't sound like a book I'd read. Um, wasn't. Heather was reading Professionalizing Motherhood by Jill Savage, and she shared this with me not that long ago. Very profound. It says, I once read in Dear Abby, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who walk into a room and say, here I am. And those who walk into a room and say, there you are. What a profound statement. When we have a here I am attitude, we are waiting for people to come talk to us. We are waiting to be approached. Or conversely, we can't shut our mouths. And most often we end up disappointed. When we have a there you are attitude, though, we move beyond the self-conscious, self-focused, and even self-centered approach to meeting people. Our goal becomes finding out about the other person. Which one are you? Which one will you be today right after this service ends and you talk with other people in this room? What will it be tomorrow when you're interacting with your family, with your coworkers, whoever's in your life? Will it be, here I am, or there you are? If you have any joy at all in Jesus, and we have all the reason in the world to have joy in him, be a there you are instead of a here I am person this week and the rest of your life. Let's pray.